Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And we know that in our study of Ephesians, one of the themes is the wealth that we have as believers. And this wealth came as a result of Jesus imparting it to us, that he gave us of his riches. He became poor so that we might become rich. He laid down his life for us. God so desperately longed to have relationship with us that he gave of himself to make that possible. And we began our study in the book of Ephesians a few weeks back. And the book of Ephesians can be broken up really into three main sections if you're one of those outline type of people. The first section is chapters 1 through 3 as we see our wealth as believers. And we're going to be looking at that over the next several weeks. Chapters 4 through the ninth verse of chapter 6 we see our walk, and that is the practical application of our wealth. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, we see our warfare. As Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he tells us to put on the armor of God. And so our wealth, our walk, and our warfare really kind of sums up this book. And for the next several weeks, we will examine this first section of Ephesians where Paul describes our wealth as believers in Jesus Christ, this wealth that was imparted to us from Jesus, who became poor, that we might become rich. And we are wealthy beyond anything we could ever imagine. And yet, so often, we live like beggars because of our failure to enter in to all that God has for us. In fact, a great illustration of that is the children of Israel. As we're studying the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, we've seen the children of Israel wandering in the desert for 38 years. They're in numbers. Interesting that only five chapters are dedicated to those 38 years. The rest of it is about a one-year period of time. But five chapters dedicated to 38 years because in those 38 years, they really accomplished very little that was noteworthy. And when we're living in that place of mediocrity, when we're not entering into what God has for us, there's really very little to write home about. There's very little that's going on in our life. And Jesus said that he's come to give us life and life more abundantly. And yet we have to enter into that. If we want to be like the children of Israel there in Kadesh who sent out the spies. And then when the spies came back and said, well, it's kind of difficult. There's giants in the land. If we want to be like them and say, well, forget it, then God will allow us to do that. God will allow us to fall short of what he has for us if that's what we choose to do. But it breaks his heart. He's come that we might have abundant life. But you have to enter in to that. Alexander McLaren said this, we may have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand and bids us to take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he is poor? This wealth is described for us in a general sense in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, the theme verse really for this section of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And notice Paul didn't say most spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing. Peter took it even further and said everything that we need for a life of godliness has been given to us. But why is it that we make so many excuses? Why is it that we say, well, this Christian life is so hard, it's so difficult, or my past, or my present situation, or the thing that I'm going through, or that limitation that I have, or that whatever, we put that out as an excuse for the reason that we're not entering into all that God would have for us. And yet the Bible tells us that we've been given everything. Every spiritual blessing is at our disposal. And so there is no excuse. Then Paul goes on to describe these blessings or our wealth, specifically in verses 4 through 13. And in that passage, we see three sources of these blessings. We see the Father's blessings. We see the Son's blessings. And then we see the Spirit's blessings. In this section where Paul describes our wealth specifically, we see each person of the Trinity having a hand in our wealth as believers. As far as God is concerned, that is God the Father, you were saved when He chose you in Christ in eternity past. He chose you. We're going to talk about that this morning. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And as far as God the Father is concerned, that's when you were saved. But that alone did not save you. Because as far as God the Son is concerned, you were saved when He died upon the cross. When He said, it is finished. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. At that time, as far as Jesus was concerned, you were saved. But as far as God the Spirit is concerned, you were saved when you yielded to His conviction and you received Christ as your Savior. What began in eternity past was fulfilled in time present and will continue for all eternity. And so we see the different perspectives of each person of the Trinity. And God blesses us. God has given us of His wealth because of the Father's electing, the Son's dying, and the Spirit's sealing. And these things, these blessings, this wealth, they were planned by the Father, they were purchased by the Son, and they are preserved by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at each one of these sources of blessings individually over the next three weeks. And this morning we're going to look at those blessings that originate from the Father, there in verses 4 through 6. And we're going to see three blessings this morning, three things for you to take note of, three blessings from the Father. He has chosen us, He has adopted us, and He has accepted us. Three blessings from the Father. He has chosen us, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. The great debate. Did God choose us or did we choose God? Theologians have been arguing that point for millennia. People divide. Churches are destroyed over this debate because people want to have a succinct answer. People want to have a systematic reason for one or the other. That God either chose you unconditionally or that you chose God unconditionally. And the thing is, is that the answer to both of those questions, did 
God choose you or did you choose God is yes. He did both. He allowed both. Both things are true. We aren't called to understand it. We're just called to embrace it. And the thing about God is that he is mysterious, that there is much about God that you and I will never figure out. Because if we could, then he's not God. And even when we get to heaven, God is still going to be mysterious. Otherwise, he ceases to be God to us. If I can figure God out, then he's not that special. Then he's not worthy of my worship. That's why you don't worship me and I don't worship you because you can figure me out. I'm pretty easy to figure out. I'm a lot like you. The same struggles, the same issues, same things that you're going through and have gone through. And that's why mankind is not worthy of worship, because we can know each other. We can figure each other out. But God is mysterious. And why it is that we want to know everything about him is really beyond me. And it's not biblical. We can't figure God out. We won't have all the answers. People want all the answers. And sometimes we feel obligated to give people who have questions all the answers. And we think, well, if I can just answer all their questions, they'll get saved. And it's not true because they'll just create more. They'll just have another excuse. They'll just have something else to put you off with. See, when you are broken by God, when you come to that place where you realize your need for him, all of those little questions become insignificant. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to give people a reason for the hope that lies within us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't know some apologetics, but the fact of the matter is, is that at some point it becomes moot in light of how wonderful and awesome God is. And so he's chosen us. We're not called to understand that. We're not called to have that figured out, but he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. And the first thing that we see about this choosing is the condition. The condition of the choosing. It says he chose us in him. In other words, it had nothing to do with us. God didn't look at you in his omniscience and say, wow, this guy, this gal, I mean, they're really special. I'm going to pick them because they are just top notch. I want them for my family. And sometimes that's how it's presented as if. God in his foreknowledge just looked ahead and and he decided that, you know, I'm going to pick that person and that person and that person because they're really cool and I want to hang out with them. And that's not biblical at all. God chose Jacob out of his sovereignty. The Bible says he didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. Why? Because Jacob was so cool and, and Jacob just was right on and Jacob was just totally surrendered to God. Not at all. Jacob was the deceiver. In a lot of ways, Jacob was just as opposed to God as Esau. And yet God chose Jacob. Now, how do we figure that out? We're not asked to. How do we figure out, well, then how did Jacob come to that place where he chose God? And which was more important? Neither one is more important. They're both important. And when we try to go to one extreme or the other is when we get ourselves into trouble. The condition of the choosing is that it's in him, nothing to do with us. We also see the time of the choosing before the foundation of the world. And so before this earth was even created, God chose you. And we have to understand that God is not bound by time. He doesn't see things 
in the past, in the present, in the future. God sees things as eternally present. And really the best way to describe that is with the illustration of a parade. And as people, we stand on a corner, we stand on the sidewalk of a parade, and we can see each float as it passes by. And we don't really know what was going on with that float way down the street, and we don't really know what's going to happen to that float as it passes us and it goes further on down the street, but we can see that float right there, and that's how we exist is in the present. But God is above time. God would be more like up in a hot air balloon, hovering above the parade, seeing the whole parade as if it's happening all at one time. And that's how God sees things. And we can't really conceive of that. We're bound by time. We're bound by space. But God isn't. And suffice it to say, he sees everything as if it's happening now. And he chose us before the world was even created. And then we also see the purpose of the choosing, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Sometimes people that want to put all of the emphasis upon God choosing us will say, well, in that case, it doesn't matter what I do. In fact, we don't even have to evangelize because people are just going to get saved. And so it doesn't matter. And it doesn't really matter how you live, because if God shows you, then you're going to be saved. And it's all up to him. And you have nothing at all to do with it. And that point, that type of thinking is really contradicted here. As Paul says, he chose us that we should be holy and without blame. And so God didn't choose us so that we could just live any way that we wanted to live. God chose us so that we would be holy and without blame. See, that's the purpose. Yes, God shows you in your sin. God shows you when you were filthy and dirty and living in the pig pen. But God doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to now clean you up. He wants for you to begin to recognize the position that you have in Christ and then allow that position to transform your practice. See, when you understand that you're already holy, it begins to create holiness within your life. Paul put it like this in Philippians. He said that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to work it out. For it is God who works in us both to will and to do good for his pleasure. And so we're working out what's already been worked in. And so there's this awesome balance that we recognize our position and then it transforms our practice. And so he's chosen us, which speaks of his sovereignty. And his sovereignty, you guys, ought to be a very great comfort in our life. Because the sovereignty of God tells me that he's in control of every aspect of my life. See, God can't be sovereign and then not be aware of things that are going on in your life. God can't be like pretty much knowing everything. God can't be like almost in control of just about everything. No, God is sovereign and no one else is sovereign. God is sovereign in that he is control. He is in control of everything. And so no matter what has happened to you in the past, God was aware of it. He's aware of the family that you were born into. That didn't happen by accident. And maybe you were born into a super dysfunctional home. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you've, you had a really terrible childhood. And God is aware of that. And God wants to use that to produce in you his works and his good pleasure. He's got a plan for your life. 
It didn't happen by accident. God was aware of that marriage that went bad. God was aware and God is aware of those children that he gave you that maybe are rebellious. God is aware of the job that you have. God's aware of the financial situation that you find yourself in. All of those things do not come as a surprise to God. He allowed them to happen. And so his sovereignty brings great comfort. But we have to trust him. And we have to say, Lord, you didn't tell me that this life was going to be a bed of roses. That's not what you promised me. What you promised me is that you'll be with me no matter what. What you promised me is that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And so I'm going to rest in that. And heaven's coming. And in heaven, things are going to be perfect. In heaven, everything is going to be awesome. But right now, we have difficulties. We have trials. And you have to allow the sovereignty of God to bring comfort in those things. Well, not only do we see that he has chosen us, the second thing is that he has adopted us, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Having predestined, that word basically means to set parameters for your life. God looked at your life and he said, this is what I want for you. And he predestined that. And he predestined us to adoption. And when we think of adoption, we think of rescuing a child out of a harmful, dangerous and unhealthy environment and placing them into a family that will love, provide and care for them. And all of those things are true of spiritual adoption as well. God saw our helpless state and he rescued us out of the desperate situation that we were in. However, the idea of adoption biblically is much stronger than adoption earthly. It goes beyond that. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. As Christians, we are adopted as sons or daughters, meaning that we are instantly granted access to the inheritance that we have been given in Christ. Now, as children, even adopted children, you are not given instant access to the inheritance. Hopefully, you know, you're waiting until your parents, you know, die first. You know, it's always great when, when kids are like just chomping at the bit for mom and dad to croak so they can get all their stuff. I mean, that's kind of sad. But the other thing is we don't just give our kids everything when they're a child. They don't know how to, to spend it. They don't know how to deal with it. And yet, as believers... God doesn't see us as little children. He sees us as sons, as daughters. The fact that we're adopted as sons speaks of the fact that we have access to the riches, to the wealth in Christ instantly. It shows us how he sees us. He doesn't see us as a little baby Christian. He sees us as a saint, fully mature, a son, a daughter, set apart from the things of this world. <clears throat> in the Roman law, when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, that is the Roman law, he was a new person. So new that even any debts or obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they never existed. That was how the Romans viewed adoption. 
And it's really giving us a glimpse into what Paul is trying to communicate as he says that we are adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. We're adopted as mature sons and daughters of God. And a way that I think illustrates this is that if you see a sign on a business and it says Johnson and Sons, you know, furniture or whatever, you assume that Mr. Johnson now has invited his sons who are fully grown and who are mature to be partners with him in his business. You never see Johnson and children. He doesn't have his three or four year old kids running around the the shop helping him run the business. It's when they're mature that now it's Johnson and Sons. And I think that gives us a little glimpse into what's being communicated here as we're called sons or daughters of God. And in a sense, he he's made us his his partner, if you will. He's brought us into his family and all the rights and privileges of a child of God are given to us. We've entered into the inheritance that belonged to Jesus Christ. And when we think of adoption, we think of love. God adopted us because he loves us. And the love of God, you guys, it gives us confidence in our relationship with him. Romans chapter 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing that you do, nothing that you don't do. And I hope that you realize that. I hope that you realize that you can do nothing to make God love you more than he already does. And that you can do nothing to make God love you any less than he already does. There's nothing you can do to change God's love for you. Now, that's not true with with human love, is it? It's very conditional. It's very emotional. It's based on circumstances and and how we feel at the moment. But God's love is the same. It never changes. It's not based or conditioned upon your actions. And so when we think of the love of God and the fact that he adopted us, it gives us confidence in our relationship with him. Well, a third thing, a third blessing that has its source in the father is that he has accepted us. Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He has accepted us. What we want more than anything else is acceptance. As a child, we want to be accepted by our parents. As a teenager, we long to be accepted by the other kids at school. As an adult, we value being accepted by our peers. And you think about kids and how much they want to just be accepted by their parents and what they'll do to have that acceptance. And it's really sad when you see parents that won't give their... Somebody's watch is going off. Can you take care of that? Somebody, please, if your watch is going off. Well, it's amazing to me what people will do to be accepted by God, by their parents. Excuse me. Kids will go to great lengths to be accepted by their parents. And they'll draw these pictures and they'll want you to hang them on the fridge. They'll recount the alphabet and miss half of it, but you think it's the greatest thing in the world. They count to ten, and they only get like three numbers right, but, you know, it's it's amazing. And and you want your kids to feel accepted by you, and, and yet some parents tell their kids that, you know, they're just failures, they're losers, they'll never amount to anything, and it's really sad. And, 
And those kids, all they want is to be accepted by their mom and dad. Teenagers who will just about do anything to be accepted by the other kids at school, whether it be how they dress, whether it be how they talk, whether it be trying to excel in athletics, whatever they can do to be accepted. And, and there's that in crowd and then there's the, you know, the kids that nobody wants to associate with because of, you know, how they dress or because they're not that athletic or, or whatever. And kids will do just about anything. They'll do drugs to be cool. They'll sleep around just so they say that they have done that. And we go to great lengths, even as adults, to be accepted. Nobody enjoys rejection. No one desires to be isolated. Nobody wants to be the last one picked. You've experienced that, you know, where you're the last one picked. And sometimes it's like the new kid at school, and he's actually a super good athlete, but nobody knows, and and he's the last one picked. Well, he'll, he'll only be the last one picked once. You know, and then next time he'll be the first. And I remember like, you know, I was never like the clumsy kid, but I was never the best athlete. I was always somewhere in between. And when when I would get picked after some other kid, I would always think, well, I'll show that guy why he should have chosen me, you know, and and that's that's what we think. And that same kind of mindset just follows us all the way through life, you know, the recent NBA draft, there was a big debate about who was going to get picked first, and and Greg Oden got picked by the Blazers, and I'm sure many of you are Blazer fans, you know, and it's exciting. And Kevin Durant is probably, from a talent-wise and, and basketball-wise, probably the better player. And, and he just was in the wrong draft, and he got picked second because Greg Oden's a big center, and he never passed on seven-foot dudes. And so now Kevin Durant, even though he was picked second, even though he's going to make millions of dollars, even though he probably will end up being one of the best players in the NBA, he has a chip on his shoulder because he got picked second. See, we want acceptance. We want people to like us. We want people to accept us. And this need for acceptance will not be met by people. See, that's the problem. We try to find that need in others from a very young child to a teenager to an adult. We're trying to have that need fulfilled by a person, and yet it can't be. It can only be fulfilled by our Creator. And He has accepted us in the Beloved, it tells us there. In the Beloved, speaking of Jesus. You remember at Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke audibly And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that acceptance from the father really propelled Jesus into a life of ministry that was super confident in the love that he had from God the father. With all the rejection, with all the ridicule, with so many turning their back on Jesus, Jesus just remained steady. He never doubted. His calling, he never doubted God's love for him because God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that same thing is said of you and of me because God sees us through Jesus Christ and we're accepted in the beloved. And parents say hurtful things to their kids. And maybe you can remember things that were said by your parents that were hurtful and and it sort of hindered you in life because you believed it. Kids believe those things. You'll never amount to anything. You're a failure. 
kids believe those things and, and it just sort of follows you through life. Or maybe other kids, as you were growing up, said cruel things to you. It's amazing the cruel things that kids say. I remember some of the cruel things I did as a kid. I remember in second grade on the playground I was in this gang. I don't know why we were we were a gang, but we were a gang. And we would just go around beating kids up. Second grade. And I remember taking this one kid, he just got a brand new coat and he was all proud of it. And I took his coat and we stomped on it in the mud puddle. Why would I do that? I feel bad about that to this day. I wish I could call him and just say, man, I'm sorry, can I buy you a new coat? You know, it's just terrible the things kids do and the things that that we do to hurt other people. And sometimes that even continues on into adult life and especially in marriages People say the most hurtful things and and spouses do the most hurtful things. And these things follow us and they weigh us down and they hurt us. And I can do nothing to change that. Can't change your past. Can't change what's happened to you. But I can tell you that God doesn't believe any of those things. You are his prized possession. Chosen before time. Adopted into his family. Accepted by his grace. And you can have confidence in that. You can have confidence in His love for you. And each of these blessings that we've looked at this morning teach us something about God and have a direct application into our personal life. As we looked at the fact that He chose us, we see His sovereignty and we talked about that He's in control of every aspect of our life. There's application for you in that. That He's in control. He's adopted us, which speaks of His love, which gives us confidence in our relationship with Him. And he's accepted us, which speaks of his grace, that he accepts me just the way I am. All my faults, all my failings, all my foibles, God accepts me. In fact, Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he doesn't want to leave us that way. He accepted you that way. He chose you in that. He adopted you. But now he says, look, I want to clean you up. I want to make you into that person I created you to be. Just as Paul tells us in the next chapter of Ephesians that we were saved by grace through faith that had nothing to do with ourselves because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he's created us, called us, saved us for good works. He hasn't saved us so that we can just do our own thing. He saved us so that we can walk with him and have fruits in our life and produce good works. Man, he's got a great plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, which has become a very famous verse. Maybe you even have it up in, in your home. Maybe you've seen it written on a placard or some type of a thing like that. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future into hope. The Bible tells us that his thoughts toward us are more numerous than the sands of the sea. And I could easily see God thinking about me a lot, but not good thoughts. I could see God just thinking, man, this guy's a real pain in my side. Why did I create him in the first place, you know? But his thoughts toward us are not evil. They're thoughts of peace to give us a future and a hope. That's what God has for you. And maybe you just haven't been allowing him to work that out in your life. You see, 
we're working out what has already been worked in. Do you realize what's already been worked into you? Do you realize who you are in Christ? Are you entering into all that He has for you? Are you recognizing the wealth that's at your disposal? No more excuses. No more justification. No more looking to the past. No more blaming our parents. Let's enter in to what God has, to that abundant life. Let's stand and pray together.